Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. There's plenty to celebrate in March. And ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is a transformative time for Black America. Our income is at an all time high, and the opportunity for economic empowerment is unprecedented. It's not just about dreaming anymore, it's about turning those dreams into reality by creating blueprints for generational wealth. Prudential has a remarkable history of supporting communities and institutions that have been overlooked for far too long. For instance, they've pledged a staggering $1 billion to programs, partners, and initiatives focused on historically excluded communities. Build your financial blueprint today at prudential.com blueprints. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. Elizabeth Dutton. Zarin Burnett. Got a question for you, my friend. Yes, ma'am. Do you know what's ridiculous? Uh, yeah, I do. Okay. Well, I'm sitting over here just honestly curious. I will let you know. Okay. Ah, I knew you were generous. So I like jokesters. Yeah, you do. Tricksters. The ultimate trickster is what one art historian called this artist, Jens Hanning. And uh, he's from, he lives in Copenhagen. All right. He's a conceptual artist. He does like big sculptures and, uh. He had this one, uh, he had a thing about like a sound piece where um, Turks told jokes in their native language and then he played it in a public square in Oslo. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You you see where I'm going with this. Anyway, uh, this is not a mashup. P.S. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, he, it's but- my birthday. I can cry <laughs> if I want to. We, we did actually get a lot of tips off on this, um, but it's a good art kind of mini heist. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, so this, this haunting, he, he'd done a piece before that had, um, currency on it, Mm -hmm. money. And so a, um, a museum gave him money to create two works with banknotes featured all over these canvases. Uh, it was supposed to have, um, 492, 549 kroner. Uh, which is equivalent to little, you know, 69,000 ballparking dollars, um, which is the average annual salary in Denmark. And he was supposed to put it on this canvas and, oh my gosh, what a statement. And look at this is what we make. (laughs) So he goes, he goes, he's like, yeah, hold on. Let me just work on this. I love that. Let me work with this. Right. right. And he drives up in his Mm -hmm. little scooter, whatever, Mm -hmm. scoot, scoot. He toodles up (laughs) and walks in with two blank canvases and is like, here are my pieces. And he says, they said, what? And he said, yeah, they're called take the money and run 
Oh, yes, I heard of this cat. I just gave him blank ones. I love this. He's like, I spent the money. Yeah. All right, there you go. And art. So then Ta-da! the museum was like, not funny. Seriously, where's the art? He's like, not funny. This is art. <laughs> this is it. And so. Uh, Can I say Marcel Duchamp? Well, but this they, is it. They said, well, you're supposed to turn back. Like, we're supposed to get this money back. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to be able to take it off the canvases when this thing's I didn't see all that done. in the paperwork. Yeah. So the, they took him to court. Oh. And the court said that he could keep 40,000 of those kroner because that was what they were supposed to pay him, but he had to give everything back. And he's now appealing it because he's like, it is but art. <laughs> Who's to say? It was conceptual art. Yeah. That was my concept. The concept is I took your money and I ran. <laughs> and that, my friend, is ridiculous. Oh my God, that's super ridiculous. I know it is. Thank, Thank you. you. You Thank laid you one so out much. for me. Well, if you got a second, I got one for you. Yes. This story, it is wild. Are you ready to have your mind the flippid? All the time. Yeah, because this is a story of how and why cocaine became the thing. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's ridiculous. It, this story, okay, Elizabeth, it comes down to three iconic names. Two brands and a man. Okay. Yeah, now what's, what was, for me when I was doing the research on this, what was truly wild is how these three and their relationships to cocaine, it changed not just recreational drug use forever, but also how you and I and we, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea, how we think about ourselves and others. Oh. Yeah. Did you know that we can blame cocaine for the rise of Freudian analysis and talk therapy? What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is Ridiculous Crime, a podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heists, and cons. It's always 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. You are correct. Elizabeth. Zarin. All right, for reasons that make perfect sense when we've discussed, cocaine comes up a lot in the show. Yeah, I guess. I yeah, bring it, it up a lot in the you show. Bring it up right? a lot in the show. It's often involved in ridiculous crime is because it inspires ridiculous egos. It's just well, right it there. It fuels ridiculous crimes. Mm-hmm. It it's a subject, it's a target mm-hmm. of crimes, yeah. It's both a motivator and the target. Yeah. Yeah. So why did we start sniffing that demon white powder anyway? I don't know. Well, I'm going to tell you. Oh, simply go. put, the reason why people do coke recreationally comes down to three names that you know. You okay. already know these folks. Sigmund Freud, uh-huh. Coca-Cola, and Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock, uh, okay. <laughs> like I said, two brands and a man. <laughs> okay. Now let's start well, with like the first. Well, like a brand, a man, and a fictional man. Sure, but Sherlock Holmes at this point is a brand. Okay. I'm stretching it. Well, then two brands and a man. Okay, I got All right, it. how about this? No, I got it. A brand, a man, and a fictional man. Okay, I like it. Better? Okay. Now start with the first one up. Coke, as in Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Let's separate the fact from the fiction, legend from the myth, and uh, also the, the Coke from the Cuba Libre. <laughs> now, Elizabeth, you ever heard of the drink uh, Von Mariani? No. You ever heard of Queen Victoria? Not the cruise ship, the woman. Yeah. Okay. We, we go way back. What about Thomas Edison? I know of him. Ulysses S. Grant. Yes. You like to read. Yes. You like the playwright Heinrich Ibsen? Yes. What about Jules Verne? Yes. Okay. You're also a former Catholic, so you ever heard of Pope Leo the Thirteenth? Yes. Can you guess what all of these folks have in I'm common? I'm starting to guess. What? The little sniffers. No. They all oh. publicly exclaim the virtues of drinking red wine laced with cocaine. Oh, la- oh God. Yeah. The Holy Roman Father, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, he was a particularly big fan. He said that Juan Mariani, the brand name for cocaine red wine, was perfect for those times when, quote, when prayer was insufficient. 
Wait. Okay. Stop. 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 Okay. So he just did a little sprinkle me, sprinkle me into mm-hmm. the red wine. Yes. And he's like, only cocaine. Jesus makes better wine. This is and amazing. He's like, this. This is. I can do anything now. Yeah. Exactly. He's like. He's this like, is a nightmare. <laughs> so what about old Tommy Edison? He was also a big fan of cocaine wine. He was like, look, the electric light bulb ain't going to invent itself. Daddy needs his cocaine wine. Cocaine? I'm not I'm not familiar with cocaine wine. I this know. Is, again, this right? is terrifying. <laughs> also, another big fan. Former Civil War general, U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant. He was a Vol Mariani man as well. Grant, known to be a drinker. He, uh, at the end of his life, when he was writing his memoirs, he tasted some of this cocaine-laced wine. He's like, we're going to get a barrel of this stuff. And it was always red wine? Don't yeah. you think it would make sense to put it in white wine? Uh, if like you were, white. Yeah, if you're dumping, like, just straight co- powdered I cocaine don't know. into just, the and wine. And also just the vibe of a buttery shard. Yeah, <laughs> smooth buttery <laughs> shard. So you have all these incredible endorsements, right? You got luminaries, queens, mm-hmm. popes, writers, actresses like Sarah Barnhart, the big actress of the 19th century. Inventors, you know, war heroes, everybody is saying, you got to try this cocaine wine, right? It becomes a publicity goldmine and it helps launch a cocaine craze. It was like right? the four loco of the day. Exactly. This was the first cocaine craze. It starts out based on this one humble little scientific journal paper, uh-huh. right? So back in 1859, there was this chemist, Friedrich Wohler, and he isolated the active ingredient in the coca leaf. Now, that same year, an Italian scientist, Paolo Montegaza, he wrote a paper about this strange South. American plant called coca and it's isolate cocaine. He was astounded with the potential for medicines. He's like, oh, you can do everything with this stuff. It's amazing, right? Mm-hmm. French chemist, he reads this Italian scientist paper about the coca plant and all of its medicinal properties, gives him ideas. He mm-hmm. thinks to himself, hey, what if I what if I were to pour some of this coca into my wine, huh? <laughs> so, and that, Elizabeth, was the invention of the French dish coke de vin. No. No, it's not. I was no, say, it's that's chicken. Okay, yeah. hey, what it really is, is with his idea, what if I dump some of this coke into my Revon? He was like, that became the brainchild of the French chemist Angelo Mariani. So for his new uh, beverage, he selected a fine Bordeaux wine, a smart red with an earthy nose, and uh, he laced it with six milligrams of coca leaf per ounce of wine. Oh. Yes. Per so, ounce? Per ounce. What? And thus, Vaughn Mariani was born. He named it after himself. He's like, I can't feel my face. <laughs> exactly. I can't even. Is he as my teeth? So That's it was insane. called, technically, the official name was Vaughn Tonique Mariani a la Cuca du Perro. Okay. All right. So it was sold as a digestif, an aperitif. It was billed as an energy-boosting tonic. It's just everything to anybody. Cocaine wines were even sold as safe for French kids. Now, you have to understand, French kids were already drinking wine, so it was just the cocaine that was new. So, anyway, the (laughs) year, at this point, we're in 1863 when he invents (laughs) this cocaine wine. So this new drink, which I said, it's heavily marketed, right, around the world. Vaughn Mariani becomes this huge hit. You've seen posters of Vaughn Mariani, those big Bella Polk-styled things. Yeah. Most likely, I'm betting, you've seen one. Okay. Now, the Queen of the British Empire, the head of the Catholic Church, they're both saying, Coke wine is it. So, (laughs) what do the people do? Everyone's like, oh, this is amazing. Then, Medicine comes along. There's this wave of doctors. They start singing the praise of cocaine wine. In the journal, Medical News, this was from uh, 1890, it reported, quote, that no recognized medical preparation has received stronger endorsement at the hands of the medical profession. So... Eventually, what? America gets its grubby little hands on medical cocaine and coke wine. And, you know, and then we start doing what we do best. We turn it into big business. Yeah. So what it first started out as snake oil, like, you know, based on right? we've talked yeah. about the ancient yeah. Chinese medicines in the West. 
Eventually, these turn into patent medicines, and these patent medicine ingredients were later replaced with cocaine. Because they're mm-hmm. like, why do we got to put in whiskey and a bunch of sugar? We can just put it in the cocaine. So yeah. then all of a sudden, boom, almost all the patent medicines are cocaine and morphine or laudanum-based, right? Yeah. Eventually, this blossoms into a whole industry of health tonics and vitality-restoring elixirs and all yeah. that kind of stuff, right? Many of these, as I said, they feature huge doses of cocaine. And so much so that... When Von Mariani wanted to import his cocaine wine, uh-huh. he had to up the amount of cocaine he put in his wine. Yes, exactly. Oh, God. So the thing about how Von Mariani was, like how, why it was such a, like a kick to the spirit, if you will, mm-hmm. was the cocaine would be metabolized by the wine. They, okay, you ready for a little chemistry, Elizabeth? Always, you I love guess. Chemistry. I, sciences is, and me, ugh. Oh my God. F- f- love each other. Two fingers and a, one glove. I mean, there ha- I have not met a science class I couldn't fail. <laughs> so the active ingredient in red wine is ethanol. That's a type of alcohol, uh-huh. right? So ethanol can also be used as a solvent. So this solvent then can extract what we think of as cocaine from the coca leaf, right? And then it kind of will suspend the cocaine in the red wine. So what that means is that when you drink the Vaughn Mariani, the coca leaves and the red wine, they create this new third chemical compound called coca ethylene. This is then formed in the liver as you metabolize the coke wine. And uh-huh. this is what gave Vaughn Mariani its powerful kick this cocaine or coke ethylene it gives also crazy euphoria inducing qualities it's like cocaine and wine formed a wonder twins like situation uh-huh. right so no unfortunately and i don't know sadly who you say if you were a fan of all mariani the inventor angelo mariani he made one big mistake he forgot to pass on his recipe to his descendants uh-huh. so his coke wine fell out of production as soon as he drops dead did he right? die of a heart attack his secret to the cocaine went, wine went to his grave with him I do not know if he died of a heart attack. Probably. I have to, I, I have to consort with my sources, but I okay. can't tell you right now. Interesting. Anyway, his creation, right? It inspires the Americans, as I told you. One American in particular is going to turn this into a great empire, a cocaine, wine, health tonic. This American, he was a morphine junkie, a former Civil War veteran on the losing side. His name, John Pemberton. Uh-huh. He creates Pemberton's French wine, right? Now, the year at this point, we're into 1885. Now, Angelo Mariani, as I told you, the original formula for coca wine, he'd featured six milligrams of cocaine per fluid ounce. Mm-hmm. But when he wanted to sell to the Americans, he had to bump it up to 7.2 milligrams per ounce. Okay. So Pemberton's just like, he's clocking right those same types of numbers, he's like, right? I'll, I'll see you and raise you to nine. He's like, that's not enough. I need a little something extra to give a little more kick, a little more pep in your step. So he drops in cola nuts. That's his big secret. So this is a heavy kick of cocaine and caffeine and it's just euphoria. So he's now got a supercharged cocaine wine with Uh extra caffeine. He calls it Pemberton's French wine. Instant hit. Now, a year later, the Atlanta Town Fathers, they pass legislation to make Atlanta, Fulton County go dry. The whole area, no liquor is being sold. So it's one of the first prohibition laws. The South was way ahead of the nation on this. And old Pemberton, he has to immediately 86 the wine from his new drink. So what does he do? He does it. He just says, I got a hit on my hands. I, but I, I, I got to like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He goes, ah, I got it. I'll make a carbonated tonic. So he makes this carbonated version of his cocaine wine and he calls it Coca-Cola. 
Wow. So that's the coca for the cocaine and the cola for the cola nuts. It all comes from the cocaine wine. wine part was now gone. And so next comes new legislation, federal laws. 1906, the U.S. Congress passes the Pure Food and Drug Act, right? This was because of all the patent medicines people were dropping yeah. dead from, going blind. The right. limbs were falling off. They're like, <laughs> we got to come up with a law. So they come up with basically the USDA's initial. There's yeah. also other factors. We'll talk about those later. Anyway, this was a, basically a response to primarily muckraking journalists of the day. Okay. They're, they did all this work to expose the unsanitary conditions in like the uh, factory meat production places like the Chicago yeah. meat factories. Think Upton Sinclair, the jungle. Say, yeah. Okay. So that book was published in 1906. Mm-hmm. This becomes huge trouble for Coca-Cola when they now pass laws in 1906 for this Pure Food and Drug Act because people are so horrified by this book. They're yeah. like, we need new laws. Coca-Cola is like, damn it, our cocaine, right? <laughs> so then an even worse blow comes. In 1914, cocaine is made fully illegal in the U.S. So they're like, what are we going to do now? Our whole product line is based on this. You can't buy it without a doctor's prescription. We can't get all of our customers' doctor's prescriptions. Yeah. What are we going to do? So they're like, well... We'll have to get a doctor's note for the company. So at this point, Coca-Cola had been enduring a decades-long fight to secure its supply of coca leaves. It was ready to fight for its coca leaves. So they'd been primarily importing them from Peru, uh-huh. but they had been also experiencing all sorts of crazy ideas. At one point, they decided they would try to grow their own coca. So they went and they bought up uh, this land and they created these secret coca farms in Hawaii. Oh, really? Yeah, but they found that they were much better at being a drink maker than a coca farmer. So they're like, mix that, right? <laughs> so then the cocaine prohibition sets in. I tell you, cocaine, where's Coca-Cola going to get their coke? So they found a new way to secure their coca supplier. They sought out a new business partner, the U.S. government. So oh, at the time, the president of Coca-Cola was a man named Asa Candler. He's also the first to change Coke's secret formula. He took out the cocaine. Like, he's the guy, right? Yeah. So in his place, he came up with decoconized coca leaves. So, yeah, the active part of the cocaine was taken out, leaving only the flavor of the coca leaf. Huh. So okay. he works with legislators in Washington. And Asen Candler, he made sure Coca-Cola was exempted from any current prohibitions, any future prohibitions. And Coca-Cola's lobbying efforts pay off. New laws are drafted. Coca-Cola is exempted. There's a proviso on the law that allows the drink maker to use, quote, decoconized coca leaves or preparations made therefrom or to any other preparations of coca leaves that do not contain cocaine. So huh. to this day, Coca-Cola has the same supplier of its decoconized coca leaves. Maywood Chemical Works in Maywood, New Jersey, one of two companies that was grandfathered in into so these laws. So there's still the taste of the yeah, coca a cocoa, but just no cocaine, no active ingredient to get you high. And so that's part of that, like, secret recipe. Part of the secret recipe, yeah. So this company, company, Maywood Chemicals, This is they're located, like, 10 miles from Manhattan. They're not, like, I mean, they're in New Jersey. It's part of, like, that New Jersey chemical, chemical corridor yeah, yeah. that I always make fun of. But anyway, the company, it continues to this day to legally import and process copious amounts of cocaine. And they're all sitting there in New Jersey. And the Atlantic, in 2003, they reported on this Maywood chemical. Chemical Works. Uh-huh. At the time, in 2003, they imported 385,000 pounds of coca leaf. And the cocaine they take out, what do they do with that? Uh, that would have been, if they would have turned into cocaine, that was about $200 million worth of cocaine. That's what I'm wondering. So what do they do? Just flush it down the toilet? They, just, they incinerate it, apparently. And then that's, someone... that's the story. So. <laughs> and then, like, the local ne'er-do-wells yeah. climb just the smokestack. Yeah. Yeah. I think they do it in, like, pressurized... Anyway, it, I do not have an answer for how they get rid of the cocaine that they isolate. That's, yeah. But as you, to your question of can you even taste the coke in yeah. Coca-Cola... 
I they say it's perceptible. They say that it's very actually important flavor, and then okay. when you take it out, people are like, "This this is what is this?" Pepsi? I wonder what it tastes like isolated. Yeah, well, I'm curious what wine cocaine tastes like. That's or cocaine wine. <laughs> cocaine That's personally, wine. Yeah. yeah. So that was the first cocaine craze. Coca Cola popularized it, and so did uh, Von Mariani. Now. Let's peel back the curtain for the next big name in cocaine, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> but first, we'll take a break, Elizabeth. Yes. I know you need to cool down, and we'll be back Whew, in two and I need me a glass two. of cocaine wine. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus your tax refund belongs to you not an identity thief Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right, Elizabeth. Zarin. We're back. We're back. Now, you may be wondering, Zarin, we're talking cocaine. Zarin, we're talking cocaine. But where is the crime? 
Yeah, where is You the somehow crime? have cocaine, but no crime. <laughs> How is that possible? And I'm like, fair enough, Elizabeth. That is a fair point. <laughs> but Coca-Cola was able to change the law, so what they did was not illegal. So we've just barely missed crime. Yeah, a little We've just side skirted step. around it, all right? Well, so far, we've only been kind of ridiculous. For more ridiculousness, let's talk Siggy Freud. Uh-huh. Father of the id, the ego, the superego, talk therapy, dream therapy, uh, a.k.a. Freudian analysis, mm-hmm. the whole bit, right? Freud, as it turns out, was a big time, and I mean huge cokehead. Really? Okay. Yes. Freud I feel like kind of, I kind of knew that in the back You of may my have head. heard about it. It's like something you hear in like a college dorm room. Like, you know, Sigmund Freud, he liked cocaine. You know, the, the <laughs> professor mentioned in class and they tell you half the story. Oh, my God. It's like when someone takes a philosophy class yes. and then you have to hear about, maybe we're a brain in a jar. <laughs> Get over it, dude. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so Freud, to, to frame it in modern terms, mm-hmm. Freud was the kind of cokehead who'd make Stevie Nicks say, damn, son. Oh, really? Oh, Freud was the kind of cokehead who'd make John Belushi nervous. Did he have someone uh, blow it up as pooper? No, dude. Well, not quite. He didn't get to there, but it, it gets pretty well, you graphic. You mentioned uh, the white witch. Oh, yeah. Nicks. That's how she got it when she blew uh-huh. out her nose. He blew out his nose, too. Oh, he did. Oh, that's how much he loved cocaine. Blew aye, out his aye, nose aye. just like Stevie Nicks. So gross. So uh, Sigmund Freud, he's essentially why we have recreational cocaine. Really? One man. Almost single-handedly, Freud made cocaine a thing. He's like, cocaine's a thing now. Thanks to Freud. <laughs> Look at me. But how? How did Freud do it, Elizabeth? Yeah, Great question. It? Thank you. Now, remember how I told you about that academic paper about cocaine? Mm-hmm. The French chemist, Angelo Mariani, he reads it, and he's like, well, he wasn't the only one to read it. Not just cocaine wine spurned from that. Mm-hmm. Freud also, he peeped academic papers. He read that one. He read others. And a bunch of the medical minds, they all were coming to cocaine and seeing potential. In it. He was part of this early wave of adopters. So... Who were these early Coke lovers of academia, Elizabeth? Desperate to know. You're just hot with the questions today. I am. I'm, I'm just loving full it. of questions. Well, let's start with my man, Carl Collar. That's with a K. And a, a C. Carl K. Collar. Okay. All right. He was a 27-year-old unpaid medical I was like, his name's Carl intern. with a K, Collar with a K. Please don't let his middle name be Kevin. <laughs> no, no, no. He's, <laughs> he's a German. So when he decided to experiment with cocaine compounds, who did he decide to experiment on, Elizabeth? Monkeys. Himself, of oh. course. He's like, I don't have money for monkeys. <laughs> I got money for Carl and some cocaine. So I'll roll the dice on he this. He wanted to see how cocaine worked as an anesthetic. That was the big deal okay. originally, right? So that's what that's used for now. Yeah, like, that was its original clinically. purposes. Yes, it remains so. And yeah. so it's, uh, he and a colleague, they made up a cocaine solution, and then Kohler loaded up his eyeballs with the solution, like his eyedropper. Eyeballs? He did like an eyedropper thing. Uh-huh. Right? So he, he found that it numbed his eyeballs. Like, it totally worked <laughs> as an anesthetic, right? And so they tested. He had his colleague shove pins into his eyeballs. Stop. Oh, no, 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 no. But Elizabeth, no. good news is he couldn't feel the pins shoved into yeah, his eyes. Yeah, but I can feel it when the I'm co- imagining the it. The cocaine worked. I have this problem that yeah. when I see like footage of someone getting hurt uh-huh. or like someone describes something, I some sort of injury some to someone. Graphic detail. I imagine it. My like I get it. like sharp pains in my legs. I'm sorry, you're such an empath. I know I'm a freak. I forget that. No, I forget I'm, that. So I, like when you talk about that, I'm trying not to imagine it. And yeah. I say all sorts of horrific things, because but in I my don't head, do that. Yeah. when I describe violent things, I, I, it's a cartoon. Yes, I've noticed that about you. You yeah. always cartoonize violence. But like, violence. especially like if I see one of those videos where like someone jumps a bike off something and, and then like slams into a wall, uh-huh. <gasps> I get like sharp pains in my legs. Yeah, what is I, that? Uh, I think you're very empathetic. You basically feel their pain in a sense or you at least your mirror neurons ex- imagine your mirror motor neurons go oh this is what it would feel like and then you experience I think it. I have an that's ex- how Kelly Slater learned to surf a bunch really well in Florida he watched all these videos and just thought about what they would do and just basically worked his muscles on other people's waves huh 
Well, I just think I have like an excess uh, quantity of wussy in my body. <laughs> I don't want to tease you about it, but you know. <laughs> I'm embarrassed by it. No, you shouldn't be embarrassed. It's a good quality. And that is honestly how we became such a great species is our ability to feel and to learn from well, others. Well, except for if you have cocaine in your eyes and you can't feel. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, this was, as a good uh, transition, Elizabeth, Thank you so huge much. news for surgeons. Oh, They were like, sure. we can now knock out. This is basically the first use of local anesthetic. I've had eye surgery, by the way. Oh, well, I, I have, wish they would have done this. I've, put I've never solution. done Coke don't want to, but in your eyes? it would have been better than what I had going on. Yeah, well, this is how... They, in an alley. <laughs> in an alley with a brick. With a fork. anesthetic was a brick. <laughs> so, anyway, you can numb an area of the body without putting a person all the way under. That's the genius of local anesthetic because people still die from going under. Oh, so yeah, there's it's a very danger. dangerous. So if you have cocaine, you're like, oh, this helps us. This is great, right? So before Coke met Kohler's eyeballs, doctors had to rely on chloroform, ether, yeah. these like kind of like clumsier versions. Uh-huh. So soon enough, the medical profession, they love it. They start singing the praises of cocaine. It's all over academia. But the public doesn't know about this. So they're not up on the latest ana- uh, anesthetics, right? <laughs> right. So Robert Bartholomew wrote in 1891 about the, like, how it spread through medicine. Quote, no remedy in modern times, probably in any age of the world, has become so famous in so short a time as cocaine. And no remedy has so soon been subjected to the test of physiological experiment and clinical observation. Right? Oh, Coke okay. is it. Now, let's not get it <laughs> twisted, though, right? As, as Europeans didn't discover cocaine, not any more than they discovered the Americas, mm-hmm. because in South American societies and cultures, cocaine was a staple crop. It was revered as a gift from the gods. Yeah. It was praised for its medicinal properties. It was very well known, but it was not used recreationally. No, didn't they chew on it for they high They chewed altitude. on the leaves. Yeah, but they wanted stamina, energy, yeah. long hikes, uh, on hunts. You know, it was used as a performance-enhancing drug, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Now, it was the Europeans who turned coke into a recreational Drug, just sitting around getting high on a couch, right? <laughs> so in the 19th century, European scientists, they got really good at isolating the active ingredients of plants. So mm-hmm. in 1803, it started with morphine. They had isolated it from opium, or so from the poppy plant. Yeah. And then 1820, along comes caffeine and quinine. They're isolated, very important, uh, especially uh, quinine from malaria. In 1828, nicotine is isolated. And so then we start making a lot of uh, pesticides out of nicotine. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. In 1859, science isolates the active ingredient from coca leaves. And so, and then I told you that same year, Paolo Mantegueza, he writes his paper <laughs> examining the properties of cocaine, launching off all the cocaine wine. And, but he also, as I said, inspired all these medical people, right? So in his experiments, he documented the experiments and he wrote in his documentary, quote, God is unjust because he made man incapable of sustaining the effects of coca all life long. I would rather live a life of 10 with coca than one of 100 with thousand without it. Wow. These people are like... They are hooked. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, this. Like, they're just about it, right? <laughs> like, Mary and Barry be like, man, you need to calm down. <laughs> it's like, really, though? So that first paper would not only inspire, as I said, the French chemist to make coke wine, but also inspired the Viennese medical student looking for a path to wealth and fame, a.k.a. Ziggy Freud. Now, but first, Elizabeth, I got one more doc for you. Okay. Enter William Halstead. Uh-huh. You know who William Halstead is? No. He's the father of modern surgery. Okay. Right? So he's like, it all basically traces back to him and like his like ideas about like, what if we put him under? What if we like wash our hands? You know? I'm sure like, you love him. Yeah. Because you love surgery websites. I do. This surgery. is a lot of times when you come in here to headquarters yes. and you'll be giggling I'm at like, your yeah, phone. You see this. And you'll say, look at this. And you'll show me something yeah. and, then and then my like, legs hurt. And goes sideways out of Then I get skin. the pains in yeah. my legs. <laughs> I'm like, really, it goes back in the body a little bit. Don't worry. hand is flayed yeah. open. Yeah. I'm like, he's been degloved, but they get it all back on. 
Oh, yeah. Anyway, Halstead, <laughs> my man, he was, as I said, father of modern surgery. He also goes all in on cocaine and the anesthetic properties of cocaine because as a surgeon, this is huge for him, right? So the problem, though, for him was cocaine messed him up like he was an 80s pop star. Aww. Yeah, Halstead, he's working in New York at the time as a surgeon, but then he starts doing too much self-experimentation like all the others, and he starts not showing up at work at the hospital. <laughs> he starts to fail to show up for key meetings. That was up late experimenting. Yeah, exactly. It gets so bad that one day he shows up for work as a surgeon in a busy New York hospital. Lots of people. Everyone's like, oh, frantic. There's blood on the floor. He's coked up to the gills. He tries to operate. He can't trust his surgeon's hands. He backs away from the patient, all right? And he uh-huh. says, I-, I can't operate. He then exits. Oh, this the- is my son. He, no. basically, <laughs> he, uh, he walks out of the operation theater. He goes home and he's like, I need to do more cocaine about it. This is terrible. Well, <laughs> yeah, that'll fix it. <laughs> he then spends the next seven months in alone in his apartment getting high on his miracle drug. Oh, my God. Yes. Finally, in 1886, Halstead's like, I think I have a problem. So <laughs> he checks into Butler Hospital in well, good for him. producer Dave's hometown of Providence, Rhode Yay. Island. So he got treated for cocaine addiction, you know? And so he gets released. But unfortunately, he was not able to get that monkey off his back. He went on to become a professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, what? teaching all these new doctors what he's created, this, these new ways of surgery. And while he's doing this, he's also blowing rails of coke. Like while he's teaching yes. class? Like not in <laughs> class, but yeah. I like to imagine that. This is chalk. Don't worry about it. This is chalk. <laughs> so Halstead, he's never able to get free of the cocaine monkey on his back. He was just one of the early cautionary tales. Yeah. Now into well, our I mean, man like, of the hour. He. I mean, he got his life back together, though. Yeah, he was able to get his career back his together. Career, but that was yeah. about it. Everything else kind of fell to the wayside. Yeah. It was a rough one for old uh, yeah. Halstead. Now our man of the hour, Ziggy Freud, the uh-huh. godfather of recreational cocaine. Now, I'm not being facetious when I say this, Elizabeth. Yeah. I swear to God. Dominic Straitfeld, the author of Cocaine, an unauthorized <laughs> biography... <laughs> He's the guy who literally wrote the book on cocaine. <laughs> right, literally. <laughs> so anyway, he wrote this in his book, Cocaine, quote, that if there is one person who could be held responsible for the emergence of cocaine as a recreational pharmaceutical, it was Freud. Hmm. So it's not just me. It's also straight filled. I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, as I noted earlier, all the time cocaine was still legal. So this is, we're in a legal phase, right? At the time, Freud and his cokehead medical buddies, they're doing legal pharmaceutical grade cocaine. Not street cut stuff. They're just doing yeah. like straight from like the pharmacist, right? Uh-huh. Now, if you can believe it, Freud first started doing coke to treat nasal lesions. He had these huh. sores in his nose, and yeah. he found the cocaine numbed the pain. Why did he have sores in his nose? Uh, he didn't tell me. And then he noticed <laughs> it. It made him feel really good. Like, really good. Like, really? And he's like, he had all these ideas. And cool, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. This is awesome. Keep doing it, right? So I think Freud would agree that cocaine is likely the favorite drug of the ego. Yeah. So anyway, he orders up some of the more cocaine. He starts to experiment on himself because that's just what you do. He receives his first delivery from, quote, Angel's Pharmacy. That's his spot. The year is 1884. One year of cocaine later, in 1885, Freud ready to go public with his new love. He's like, let's make this Facebook official. <laughs> so he wrote a medical treatise called Uber Coca. All right, just, Uber Coca. just right to the point. He, he described everything, quote, was the most gorgeous excitement. He also wrote that, quote, if one works intensively while under the influence of Coca, after three to five hours, there is a decline in the feeling of well-being and a further dose of Coca is necessary in order to ward off fatigue. Okay, so he's right? like... Yeah, so Freud discovered what the users call the moors. 
right? Which oh, is basically, yeah. oh, I just want more Coke, right? But he <laughs> argues that this is not the case. He writes, quote, It seems to me noteworthy that I discover this in myself and in other observers who are capable of judging such things, that the first dose or even repeated doses of Coca produce no compulsive desire to use the stimulant further. On the contrary, one feels a certain unmotivated aversion to the substance. Huh. Which is a total lie. Yeah, I'm like, why yeah. do you keep telling yourself that? <laughs> Elizabeth, you have to keep in mind, at the time, Freud was a young man. He uh-huh. was one with a medical degree, but also he was, importantly, Freud had a politically radical father. He had a big shadow cast over him, and his father was ruining his potential in a very conservative Vienna. Oh, Yeah, his professional life was a nightmare thanks to Pops, right? Yeah. So Freud, he found that cocaine made all of his worries and anxieties go away. Uh-huh. And thus he concluded that cocaine would also be a perfect drug to give to morphine addicts. So Freud first learned about cocaine from a medical journal called Therapeutic Gazette. So that's what kind of framed his thinking. <laughs> but the journal wasn't unbased science. This was owned by a pharmaceutical company, Park Davis, which is now a subsidiary of Pfizer. Yeah. And anyway, as he started to write about the joys of cocaine, the pharma company paid Freud $24 to spread the good word of cocaine. <laughs> so now he's cocaine's poster boy and it's pitch man. Anyway, he goes on. Meanwhile, Fred, he starts to recommend it to his colleagues at the university. He's recommending coke to his friends, his family, people on the street. He's mm-hmm. even told his fiance. <laughs> Stopping people. Yeah, you got to try this cocaine, man. I got some right here. <laughs> They're Just like, take sir, this. sir. <laughs> Sorry, get your hand in my pocket. So Marta Bernays, that's his fiance. He's writing to her these all these letters because, you know, it's the time. You got to write letters. Uh-huh. And in his letters, just always coke is the sh- Oh, man. Yeah, it's he's the best. just rambling right? about it. He's telling her, like, Freud relied on basically cocaine for confidence confidence and crucial moments and he'd meet people he admired he'd want to impress them and well, elizabeth rather than me tell you about this i'd like you to close your eyes and to picture it my eyes are closed it is 1886 on the continent europe to be exact and you are on a carriage ride it is a delightful day a soft breeze pushes the air around in a fun flirtatious way the sound of the carriage wheels and the horse hooves is like a white noise machine that is if you knew what one of those were you don't it's the 19th century they've yet to be invented anyway you're on this carriage ride elizabeth with you as a young sigmund freud and you elizabeth are tight with freud i mean so tight because you are the cocaine monkey on his back not a literal cocaine <laughs> money. No, no, no. You are Freud's voice of addiction. Oh, I thought I was cocaine. No, no. You are the voice, Freud's voice of addiction. At the moment, you and the young doctor are on your way to see his mentor and teacher, the French psychiatrist Jean-Martin Carcot. Of course, you've, you've been there with Freud days earlier when he wrote a letter to his fiancée. Reading it aloud to himself, you recall how he explained his excitement to his fiancée, saying, Charcot has invited me along with Richetti to visit him at his home tomorrow, Tuesday after dinner. Many people will be in attendance. You can easily recall the mix of trepidation and elation in Freud's reading voice as he continued to read in his own letter before sending it off. I'm sure you can imagine my apprehension mixed with curiosity and pride. White gloves, white tie, and even a new shirt. A visit to the barber for what little hair I have left. (laughs) And a little cocaine to loosen my tongue. That last part was, of course, your idea. You whispered that into Freud's ear. Feeling a little nervous, Siggy? You should do some coke about it. (laughs) And now the big day has come, and Freud does as you suggested then and again now. You suggest he dance with that white devil. You love to whisper chaos into his ears. And the thing is, Freud listens to you. Out comes his little container of cocaine, and with two snorts... Freud feels that familiar, cool sensation run down his spine. Oh, that sweet devil cocaine, you whisper in his ear. Freud relaxes into the seat of his carriage as the sounds of horses and carriage wheels pull him even closer to his mentor's house. You whisper in his ear again. Freud listens. A little more cocaine? What a good idea, he thinks. You know to give him, you know, a little ease from his worries. <laughs> 
Oh, another mile or two to go. We're almost there. But maybe there's just another time, a little bit of time for maybe another. <laughs> oh, oh, Freud stays busy getting high as giraffe eyebrows in this carriage. He's like Vienna's Rick Ross at this point, right? <laughs> and you, Elizabeth, are so happy for him. I'm because the worst. chaos reigns. <laughs> Finally, the carriage arrives at the destination. <laughs> Just before the footman hops down from the back and comes around and opens the carriage doors, <laughs> Freud tops off. Oh, you've now convinced Freud to get completely zooted before walking into the home of his mentor. At this point, you laughably imagine Freud mashing his teeth side to side as he dominates the conversation. <laughs> Freud coming off like a yicked out Hunter S. Thompson. The carriage doors swing open. The footman offers a hand to Freud and you, giddy with excitement, ride on Freud's back as he takes his first unsteady step out of the carriage off to see his mentor. How much did Freud love cocaine, Elizabeth? Oh, my God. How much did he rely on it to calm his social anxiety? A lot. Well, in his own words, in another letter with his boo, Freud confided how he'd been doing so much blow at the time that he could hardly sleep. He oh, said, no. I was suffering from migraines, the third attack this week. By the way, although I'm otherwise in excellent health, I took some cocaine, watched the migraines vanish at once, went on writing my paper as well as a letter to Professor Mendel, but I was so wound up that I had to go on working and writing and couldn't get to sleep before four in the morning. What I find hilarious about Freud's letter uh-huh. is that the good doctor somehow misses the fact that maybe, just maybe, his miracle drug is the problem for right? him. He keeps saying, no, this is everything. It's the best. Everything. It's this other things. I don't know. The hay fever. <laughs> allergies. So he's like, he's got Pandora's box, right? Big shiny box. He, uh-huh. He's now dumped it over like, like cocaine on Don Henley's glass top table. And he's just, this is awesome. Anyway, well, let's take a little break, Elizabeth. Sure. And after this, I'll be back to tell you how Freud made cocaine further the thing, not just for himself, but for everybody. Oh, no. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash first year 15 for promotional details. 
Elizabeth. Oh, Zarin. Do you know how Freud came up with his idea for talk therapy? Coke. Cocaine. <laughs> I mean, think about it. It makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah, just the, the ramblings. Yeah, what do cokeheads like to do? Talk. Talk about themselves. <laughs> their preoccupations, their fears, their worries. Oh, my God, you're right. Right? Of course a cokehead would invent talk therapy. Yeah. I mean, it's right. Why did we miss this? Anyway. <laughs> We have a Freud coked up like Carrie Fisher in her prime, and mm-hmm. he's got all these rich Viennese folks swinging by his office, and he's like, you need to just open up and talk. Let it happen. You know, just like, you just say whatever you're thinking. And so this is how cocaine first spreads amongst the elite, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's him telling everybody how great it is, and they're like, oh, man, I do feel better, and like, I don't even care about my mother, or whatever it is that their concern is. <laughs> Meanwhile, remember I said Freud thought coke would be the perfect thing to give to a morphine addict to treat yeah. their addiction? Yeah, what's up with that? Which is like the worst idea I can think of to give a morphine Speed junkie ball. other than morphine is yeah. a cocaine habit. Anyway, enter Freud's buddy, Ernst von Fleischel Moxau. He was the aforementioned morphine junkie. He was also a medical cat physiologist. He'd suffered a catastrophic thumb injury uh-huh. while dissecting a corpse. The wound resulted in an infection followed by an amputation that mm-hmm. left him with nerve pain. So mm-hmm. he treated that with morphine, quickly yeah. developed one hell of a habit. Freud thought he had an answer to his friend's trouble. He's like, you need to maybe do some cocaine about it, right? <laughs> oh, so he treated him, and I use that term loosely, with copious amounts of cocaine. So what happens to his buddy, Elizabeth? Oh, God. I you mean, know what happens to his yeah, buddy. He developed a cocaine habit like nobody's business. Yeah, he already has addiction issues, and he's... And now he's got a supplier who's pushing it on him, literally pushing it on him. Yeah, exactly. And he starts doing so much coke, he reaches toxic levels in his body, right? So Freud's therapy plan is not working. His friend would eventually battle addiction for the next seven years of his life until he died of a premature death at age 45. Way to go, Freud. Yeah, nice one. Worse still was when Freud, high on cocaine, became convinced that his buddy, another buddy of his, a doctor, should attempt a radical operation on one of his patients. You see, his own nose, as I told you, had been severely congested, Uh just like Stevie Nicks. Now, possibly, you know, from the coke habit. So Freud undergone an operation where a doctor sliced open one of his nostrils, cleared out all his coke blockage and damage or whatever, and Freud thought that his buddy could do the same thing on his patients. He's like, yeah, just slice open her nose. It'll be perfect, right? Operation gets botched. A woman suffers for the rest of her life. Freud writes about this in his book, The Interpretation of Dreams. He records his own guilty dreams about his patient, Irma. The tragedy drives him to do way more cocaine. He's like, I need to do coke about it, right? At this point, he was doing so much coke, he was experiencing regular chest pains, depression. He was doing so much coke, he nearly imploded his career, his marriage. He still hadn't figured out that cocaine was to blame. He kept thinking, it must be something else. It can't be the stuff that makes me feel awesome. He wouldn't stop doing blow until 1896 when his politically radical father dropped dead. And you may recall that was when his original reason to start experimenting with cocaine was his father. His father dies. He quit the day after his father was put in the ground. One day after his funeral, he's like, I don't think I need cocaine anymore. You know, I wonder what Freud would say about that. I'm like, hey, tell me about your father. (laughs) Anyway, so Freud, he quits coke in 1896. Later on, Freud largely tried to bury his earlier enthusiasm for coke. He tried to act like he'd never been Johnny Coke Seed. Uh We have the receipts, right? It's there, right? So Freud, he told the whole world, coke is it. Then he was like, never mind. But people didn't hear that, right? By that point, it had spread, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, even though, as I said, he quits, Pandora's box has been cracked, cracked open. Oh, yeah. So now we have Coca-Cola, we have Freud. I told you one other one. Who did I say? Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. Well, Elizabeth, remember also I told you cocaine was legal till the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. This is very important to remember. So I'll get into another story of another super fan of cocaine, Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Authors Lester Grinspoon and James 
B. Bacalar. They co-wrote a book that details the history of cocaine, and they documented its social evolution. Of course, they got to Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Because he loved that Bolivian marching powder. Right. <laughs> As they wrote, Dr. Watson, Doyle's narrator, first mentions cocaine in The Sign of the Four, published in 1890. At that time, Holmes was injecting a 7% solution intravenously three times a day, apparently a rather large dose. Since Watson reports asking when he saw Holmes with the needle, whether it was morphine or cocaine, Holmes seems to have had more than one drug habit. But we have no more of morphine from Watson. In the spirit of mock scholarship with which Sherlock Holmes studies are conducted, we might guess that Holmes is one of those addicts who use cocaine to withdraw from morphine and simply replace one drug with another. Holmes admitted that cocaine was bad for him physically, but found it transcendentally stimulating and clarifying to the mind. Now, as the authors noted, Sherlock Holmes, he doesn't use cocaine as a performance-enhancing drug. He uses it to relax. Yeah. So, again, back to Greenspoon and Bacalar, they write that Sherlock Holmes, quote, did not use it when working on a case, but only to dispel boredom when he had nothing to do. Now, it may surprise some folks to learn that one of the great detectives of literature was an out-and-out cokehead. Yeah. Right? Does it surprise you? No, I mean... I mean you knew, right? I knew. Because I kind of told you? Well, no, I've read it. You've read and, the stories. And there are references in some of the, the adaptations, like the film and Okay, yeah, some of the TV. films cover it, yeah. But they yeah. often get dropped out. Like. Yeah. Anyway, to make their case, the co-authors, they documented all the appearances in all of his books. And there's cocaine right from the first book. All right? In A Study in Scarlet, Dr. Watson is worried about his friend's coke habit. It doesn't quite mention it by name. It gets mentioned by name three years later in the next book, The Sign of the Four. Watson actually watches Holmes shoot up, right? Yeah. And he says, and I quote, Sherlock Holmes took his bottle from the corner of the mantelpiece and his hypodermic syringe from its neat Morocco case. With his long, white, nervous fingers, he adjusted the delicate needle and rolled back his left shirt cuff. For some little time, his eyes rested thoughtfully upon the sinewy forearm and wrist, all dotted and scarred with innumerable puncture marks. Finally, he thrust the sharp point home, pressed down the tiny piston, and sank back into the velvet-lined armchair with a long sigh of satisfaction. Now, to me, that sounds like morphine well, more than I cocaine. Think I, I was real like, in reading it and in seeing, I always thought it was that Holmes was supposed to be a, a morphine addict. No, but he speaks, Holmes specifically speaks, speaks to of, cocaine. He tells the good doctor at one point, I suppose that its influence is physically a bad one. I find it, however, so transcendentally stimulating and clarifying to the mind that its secondary action is a matter of small moment. Huh. So he basically says, I don't care. It makes me feel good. Yeah. Don't give me any crap about <laughs> Blow it, doctor. Out all my blood vessels, but there you so go. So that's how the, the great detective helped glamorize cocaine. He gave it a, a patina of elegance and sophistication similar yeah. to Freud, right? But admittedly, he didn't have to worry about fentanyl like the modern users do. Mm -hmm. because, but even Victorian cocaine was still no joke. It was pharmaceutical grade, sure, right? Yeah. But anyway, Elizabeth, you still may be wondering, yes. Zarin, where is the crime? You've kind that of dodged it. Yeah. It's a fantastic question, Elizabeth. <laughs> to answer that, let's bring it back home to the U.S. Cocaine arrived on American soil in 1884 as a medical supply, as I've told you, right? It was mostly just with the doctors. By then, it was being mass-produced by European chemical companies like Merck, uh -huh. and they're throwing it over, this, over the Atlantic, right? This new wonder drug, it gets outlawed in its first state three years later, in 1887, the state of Oregon. Mm -hmm. At that point, all the news stories about cocaine abuse were about doctors abusing it. So Oregon, very small state. They can't oh, have their very wow. few doctors abusing it, so they outlawed it, right? So they're dipping into it, huh? Two years later, Montana outlawed cocaine without a prescription. So just like Oregon, it was more of an updated ban on their pre-existing laws against opium and morphine, which was a racist preoccupation in the West because of Chinese laborers. Yeah. So Colorado... It's, it's, sorry, it feels like cocaine, though, was probably not prescribed for people to take away from the office. 
No, it I was. I think it wasn't because yeah, it, it was. seems like if the doctors are getting busted for it, it's something that is. It's is, not being administered in a doctor's it, office. Oh, it's not. They okay. were they were being given various ways. There's like lozenges. There's gums. Uh-huh. There's huh. there are shots that they're administering, but there's also powders. There's a lot of different. They're coming up. They yeah. don't know how to best give I it think to people today. Isn't it mostly used in dentistry? Yeah, it's, it's primarily yeah. an anesthetic for used in dentistry. Yeah, in in the office. In the office. Yeah, yeah and they use yeah. those little tiny needles. So Colorado, Illinois, they soon follow suit. They update their narcotics laws. This is primarily in response, once again, to abuse by doctors and pharmacists. 1893, the state of New York, first big state to do it, they banned the use of cocaine without a doctor's note, again, to limit recreational cocaine abuse. Same thing, doctors, pharmacists. One month after cocaine had first arrived in the U.S., a Connecticut doctor, he'd created a new product. Remember, we were talking about they didn't know how to get cocaine into the body mm-hmm. the best way. So he decides, oh, I mean, once again, for medical purposes, he's going to create some way to fight the common cold with cocaine. So he grinds up menthol and cocaine and some milk sugar, and he sells this as a medical snuff, right? It's just, you can do the white powder and you can just snort it. So he thought it would open up the nostrils. What it did was create a quick and easy way to recreationally do cocaine. <laughs> Young folks love it. They start calling it <laughs> sniffing cocaine. They're, you got to get that sniffing cocaine. Oh my God. It becomes a new drug of choice. Soon enough, there's news headlines, you know, documenting this new moral panic. There's headlines like, boy, slave to cocaine, or that was from the Chicago Tribune, 1896. Uh-huh. This general move of all these stories. And they're cutting it with milk powder, you said. You know, milk sugar. Oh, milk sugar. Yeah. Still, it's interesting. Yeah, to make it sweet, yeah. but not too sweet where it'd be really crystalline. It's right. kind of a flaky, dry sugar. Okay. Anyway, there basically the, the, the story is that the moral panic is that cocaine is fueling the white slave trade. Right? That's what they the think. What? The white slave trade the is being what? run on cocaine. That's what? This is the news story, say Elizabeth. So all these like white <laughs> girls and boys are going into the big city and taking coke gummies. And then, or... yeah, they're being like suckered into warehouses by people with like cocaine. I don't know. These are the stories. <laughs> so it becomes crazy. this consistent theme, right? Okay. For two decades. In 1912, the New York Tribune ran the headline, Cocaine, an ally of the white slavers. It just They just keep doing the what? same story so... over and over okay. again, right? Despite all these screaming headlines about lost white youth, yeah. the moral panic never takes hold of people's imaginations. And th- th- just nothing's really happening. This is not the happening. story starts to shift. In 1898, a Chicago paper wrote a story about a cocaine club where black people gathered in secret and they blew rails of this new hip drug. And the paper wrote, and I quote, Yesterday, the following invitations were sent to a number of prospective members. You are cordially invited to attend a Coke party given by the Colored Cocaine Club at its hall on December 23rd at 3 p.m. There was a large attendance. Anne Ramsey, a depraved negress who was known as the queen of the cocaine fiends, sniffed the drug up her nostrils until her nose was swollen and split open. She is the ruling spirit of these gatherings. So, in these news stories, right, setting aside the casual racism, Coke was shown as the ruiner of people, right? Uh Fears of black people doing Coke were largely non-existent and mostly focused on the cocaine, not the black people. But then, as the century returned, Elizabeth, Uh cocaine sniffing became the drug of choice for working men, in particular, black waterfront dock workers and Mm. stevedores. They helped spread the drug across the South, first up and down the Mississippi, and we see all these states start banning cocaine all along the Mississippi River. It makes its way into New Orleans. And the form from there to the former plantation workers. Now it starts showing up in what would be the predecessors of juke joints. People are doing it on the weekends. Yeah. The white planters are stoked about cocaine because the black field workers worked longer and they were more productive. So they were like, yeah, the white planters started growing cocaine, giving it out to the field hands. It was like coffee in a break room. You're kidding. Oh, yeah. They just handed cocaine out, right? The popularity of cocaine spreads across the South, right? Especially in New Orleans because it's a party city. This would soon lead to a new wave of racialized fears of Negroes running amok high on cocaine. 
cocaine. The typical Southern fears of black people getting their bloody vengeance on white folks are uh-huh. creeping north with these news stories, right? The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my hometown paper, they published a story in 1900, two Negro women engage in a bloody fight in cocaine dive. Another AJC headline from the same time, frightful spread of habit among the Negroes. My favorite is from November 28th, 1900. Senators visit cocaine sniffers. I don't know what the story is there. (laughs) There was an Atlanta cop who they quoted in the AJC. He says, cocaine makes the Negroes quiet and inoffensive. And if we have less trouble with cocaine victims than with whiskey victims. So they're like all about it. The cops are saying, we're cool with it. Doesn't matter. New York papers, they start running similar stories as Southern headlines. Start getting syndicated all across the country. This wave builds over the decade. In 1905, the New York Times publishes a story. Negro cocaine evil. That's all it is. That's just three is. words. Negro cocaine evil. No story. <laughs> <Right>? Just the headline. <laughs> That's just it. It's about coke in the southern states. So all okay. these northerners are worried about what's happening down to our brothers in the yeah, south, I guess. I don't know. Concerned. Right. So later on, 1912, the New York Times story, there's another one. And this one's about the local habits. It says, Cuban Negroes introduced the cocaine vice in New York. Merck introduced the cocaine yeah. vice in New York. Anyway, this just general ambient racist trend eventually culminated in a corker of a New York Times magazine story published February 1914 with a very unsubtle headline, Negro cocaine fiends are a new southern menace. That published story, which was incorrect, mind you, detailed accounts of coke-mad Negroes. The article is written by one Dr. Edward Huntington Williams, who was a local moral scold. He featured lines in his article like, nine men killed in Mississippi by crazed cocaine takers, five in North Carolina, three in Tennessee. These are the facts that need no imaginative coloring. Why do they need no imaginative coloring, Elizabeth? Mm-hmm. Because of racism. The reader's already been primed to imagine the black men committing the crimes. Did, did they really happen? No, the purported news story included a tale of a cocaine-sniffing Negro who was invulnerable to the effects of guns. Bullets bounced off his coke-addled body. A direct what? gunshot to the heart, Elizabeth. A direct gunshot to the heart in the story is, quote, did not even stagger the man. <laughs> the news story reported how this incident and ones like it had spurred Southern cops to purchase, quote, guns of greater shocking power. So they wanted stoppers because they got these, you know, bulletproof Negroes it, running know, around and high on cocaine. The zombies. The I, real story, by the way, Elizabeth, since you did ask, yes, had I been did. published by the New York Times one year earlier. Uh-huh. In 1913, in the original reporting, it was two brothers, not one bulletproof Negro coke fiend. The brothers did act violently, and in response, three innocent black men were killed by a white mob as retribution. But why do facts matter when you got that's a good like that, racialized scare campaign to like build? That's like that dude who like trashed his own house during all the yes. George Floyd uprising yes. and then wrote Black's Rule on yeah. the driveway. Totally. Like, Look, they got me, the Black's white guy. <laughs> <laughs> so we have there's 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 our crime. All right, we got a, I got a one percent. Somebody okay. did get hurt, right? I felt that one percent was important to include. But uh-huh. so that same year as that crazy racist New York Times story runs, it finally grips America. Fall of 1914, folks down in Washington they act on this imagined threat. Lawmakers pass new legislation legislation, federal legislation, the Harrison Act. After that, it makes cocaine illegal without a prescription across the United States. Yeah. Coke usage drops off. Then the hip, they move on to heroin. We got new yeah. drugs, right? <laughs> cocaine becomes a crime when black people were doing the same miracle drug as Freud. So there's, there's our ridiculous crime. Interesting. When folks with field sweat on their backs enjoyed the preferred pastime of popes and a queen and Sherlock Holmes, once mm-hmm. the, the melanated folks started sniffing cocaine in private clubs of colored cocaine enthusiasts, yeah. that, Elizabeth, is when cocaine became a drug menace but you know what good 
And honestly, in my opinion, cocaine is a menace. It should be a yes. regulated substance. It's it's too much for the human animal. I mean, look at everybody's reaction to it. They're like, this is amazing. It's, <laughs> it's not a powder meant for, it's a powder meant for gods, not mere mortals. That's my no. thought. I think the South Americans were right. We're like, this is some God stuff, right? <laughs> Man, I know, I'm kind of making it sound good. I don't mean to. It's not. No. Coke is terrible. And you know what? I want Coke to be illegal. But anyway, that yeah. is how Coke and our history with it became illegal. Ridiculous? And ridiculous. <laughs> so what's a ridiculous it. takeaway, Elizabeth? Don't do drugs. Don't do coke. Yes. That's my big takeaway. And also, like, the people, people all coked out mm-hmm. don't know how obnoxious they are. Oh, my God, yes. I, In their minds, they're thinking they're just, like, the funniest, mm-hmm. like, quickest, cutest thing. Yeah. And, oh, my goodness. Yes. I would like to be able to show them the difference. So the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> all teeth grinding. Now, for me, once again, thank you for asking, Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, is, I don't want to know. My ridiculous takeaway is, is um, well, I thought of like the Chinese folks in the West. They could have been like, we could have told you how this would play out because <laughs> one generation earlier they had dealt with this the, with the opium laws. Yeah, exactly. And that was because of the people in the West wanted to lessen the power of fast-growing Chinese wealth. So they were like, oh, let's come up with this. We'll legalize all of them. We'll make it a problem. We can be suspicious of anyone with money. Yeah. Anyway. That was a generation earlier. So really, there's truly nothing new under the sun. Not a lick. Anyway, that's all I got for you. Boom. That was great. A history of cocaine and why we have talk therapy. That was awesome. <laughs> uh, you can follow us online at Ridiculous Crime on Twitter, Instagram. We have a website, RidiculousCrime.com. And we also like your talkbacks. Email us if you want at RidiculousCrime at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next crime. Ridiculous Crime is hosted by Elizabeth Dutton and Zarin Burnett. Produced and edited by our resident cocaine hippo caretaker, Dave Kustin. Research is by Marissa, I don't dance with that blow, Brown. And Andrea, anime is my cocaine, song sharp and tear. Our theme song is by Thomas, keep it natural, Lee. And Travis, I prefer Pepsi, Dutton. The host's wardrobe provided by Botany 500. Executive producers are Ben. Did you know that Keith Richards once snorted a line of his own father's ashes? Bolin. And Noel, yeah, I did. You told me that. Brown. Okay. So I just had to try the Snoop cereal. Um, so I went to Walmart and I bought it. It was $1.98. Um, I got the Frosted Drizzlers. And I'm going to try them. These are really good. These are really good. So continuing from the last one, um, they're really, su- not really, really sweet. I think they're just a little bit sweeter than the frosted mini wheats. Um, they're a lot cheaper too. Um, I think they're really delicious. They're really good. I can't stop eating them. Uh, definitely try them out. Ridiculous Crime. Say it one more time. Ridiculous Crime. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 
2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. 